Well, good morning once again. That was uh, beautiful to see, wasn't it? It's great that we have the opportunity to be witnesses to share in that with them. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis today. Genesis chapter 38 is where we are going to be. If you don't uh, have a Bible with you, but you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles in some of the chairs and the chair rack in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And so this is an easy one. You can work your way up to chapter 38 and follow along with us in Genesis today. When I was in seminary, I uh, had to take all kinds of classes, and one of the classes that I had to take in seminary was a class called homiletics. And you may or may not have heard of homiletics, but homiletics is the, basically the art of preaching. It's, it's not about studying so much about studying for the sermons, preparing the sermons, but it's about the actual preaching of the sermons. And if you take a homiletics class, one of the things that they teach you in class is that the people who are going to hear you each week may not, it's hard to believe, walk in excited to hear what you have to say next. I would like to think that each one of you came in here with nothing on your mind today. You have no problems in your life. You have no plans this afternoon to look forward to. The only thing that matters is what I was going to say this morning. But I'm going to guess that that's probably not the case for many of us. So, Here's my homiletical attempt to get your attention this morning. There are some things in the text that we're going to be looking at today that are scandalous enough that I'm not going to be able to read them in church. Some of you have already asked about what I'm going to do with that. So if that doesn't pique your interest in what's going on in this chapter, I don't know how else to grab you, uh, but you might want to read it on your own time this afternoon and see what I didn't want to read in gathered worship today. All right, let's get started. This story in Genesis chapter 38 is a story that seems out of place. What's just happened in chapter 37 is we've been left on a little bit of a cliffhanger. You remember what the cliffhanger is at the end of chapter 37. That's going three weeks back, but at the end of chapter 37... Joseph has been innocently sent to go check on his brothers to see how they're doing, to make sure they have all the stuff they need, to inquire about the flocks and how things are going and caring for the flocks, and his brothers decide to sell him into slavery. And that's how chapter 37 ends. Uh, Joseph, I, I told you uh, three weeks ago to, to try to uh, put yourselves there and imagine that scene. Imagine the feeling of betrayal as you are pleading with your own brothers to, to, to take you back, and they are forcibly handing you over to a group of traveling merchants who are going to take you somewhere and sell you to someone to do something. That's where we leave Joseph. And so, in any good story, you get to the end of a chapter, and you see that that's happened, you want to know what's going to happen next, right? What's going to happen with Joseph now that he's sold into slavery? Where is he going to go? What's, what's he going to do? Well, 
the author of Genesis is going to pause and say, I know we've got an exciting storyline going on here, but let me tell you about one of Joseph's brothers. His brother is named Judah. And, and, and Genesis is going to spend a whole chapter, chapter 38, on this story that seems very much like a detour, very much like a shift in focus. It seems like a story that if you were just to pull chapter 38 out of your Bible, you would never know it was missing because the story flows just fine without it. So it might not be immediately evident why we would focus for one chapter on Joseph's brother, but I hope by, we, by the time we get to the end of our time together today, it will come into focus and it will make sense. Chapter 38 tells us that after selling Joseph into slavery, Joseph's older brother Judah gets married. He marries a Canaanite woman and they have three children together, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Yes, the third son's name is Shelah. Three sons together. And the Bible tells us this, beginning in Genesis chapter 38 and verse 6, if you're there. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Remember, we're living in an era of arranged marriages. So, so, uh, so his father takes a wife for him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, wouldn't you like to know what it is that he gets put to death for? The Bible says nothing about it. So we have no idea what he does or why. We've, we've met lots of wicked people as, to get to this point in Genesis, but Ur is wicked enough that the Lord puts him to death in some way. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And here's where we're like, wait, what? If you're not familiar with the stories in the Bible and you don't have any familiarity with the culture of the time, which, might I remind you, is very, 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 very different from our culture, the things that seem totally normal to us would seem bizarre to them, and the things that seem bizarre to us were totally normal to them. And what we have being referenced here is the practice of something called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was the practice of a when a younger when a a, a uh, uh, an older brother died. The next brother in line, if he was not married, had the responsibility to take his brother's wife and the first child that they have would, would carry out the line of the older brother. Now, yuck, I know. <laughs> That's, it's weird. Uh, but that was totally normal to them. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 25, the law that's given to Moses for God's people has a section in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that talks about how leveret marriage is supposed to be practiced. So, so this is where we're at. Ur has, has been struck dead, and his brother has now a legal responsibility to raise up an heir uh, in, his, 
his deceased brother's stead. So the responsibility falls to Onan, and I'll just say this, Onan takes preventative measures to make sure that this does not result in a pregnancy, and I'll leave it at that. And this happens numerous, on numerous occasions, and God finally puts Onan to death. So we're, we're two for three on the brothers now. And Judah tells Tamar in verse 11 that she can remain a widow in her father's house until the third son, named Shelah, is old enough to marry her and we'll, we'll try again for the leveret marriage thing. And this might sound like a, a bit of a kindness, but one of the things that we have to understand is that this basically puts Tamar in a holding pattern in life. She can't move forward. She can't marry someone else. Her, uh, no, there can be no other marriages arranged. She basically has to go back to her father's house and, and remain as a part of that household until Sheila is old enough to marry her. And the problem with that is that Judah isn't being honest with her. And when, when, when Sheila reaches a marriageable age, he is not given to Tamar. So now Tamar finds herself in a position where she has no prospects for the future. This is, this is basically imprisoning Tamar without prospects and without an heir. And at a time like this, having children and having an heir is essential to your future well-being later in life. So, Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands to get an heir. And, I, and I'm telling you, this is a rough one. <laughs> okay? <laughs> There's just thing after thing here. Uh, but I'm just reporting what the Bible says <laughs> about what happens. Okay? So don't get mad at me. <laughs> Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands to get an heir. In verses 12 to 14, she has the bright idea of, dis of disguising herself as a prostitute and putting herself in the road on a way that she knows Judah, her kind of father-in-law, I guess, is going to be traveling down. Because she's going to get an heir one way or another. So Judah's traveling on his way to a sheep shearing. She knows where he's going, sets herself up there so that he's going to encounter her along the way. And the Bible says this, look with me at verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. I wonder why. Maybe because she was dressed like one, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give to you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So, he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. 
All right. We're almost through some of this. <laughs> so they make arrangements, and Judah leaves some personal items with her in pledge until he can return with the payment that he's promised to her, which is a young goat. So this is kind of like giving her your driver's license, and you get your driver's license back when you bring the payment. It's kind of, it's kind of like that. He's got his cord, his signet, his staff. His signet would have probably been something that he would press into wax. It was his seal. The staff was unique to each person. So these are, these are personal items that would easily be identifiable as belonging to Judah. And so he gives those things to her. And then later on, he sends his buddy Hiram back to pay and to receive his personal items back, his cord, his signet, uh, and his staff. But Hiram can't find her. And Hiram's asking around, where's the lady that's on the road? She's probably there all the time. And he's asking around all these surrounding people, and nobody has any idea what, what he's talking about because this woman is not normally there. This woman is actually Tamar, who has set herself up there. And so he comes back and says, uh, says I, I, I'm sorry, Judah, I tried to do this for you, but nobody knows where this woman went. She's, just, she's disappeared into thin air. And your stuff's gone, and I've still got the goat. And they decide not to make a big deal about it because it's kind of a sensitive thing. You don't want to, you don't want to, you know, you get the point. I'm trying so hard not to say something that gets me fired today. All right, fast forward three months. Three months later... Tamar, who was pregnant, is now showing, as one does three months later. And word get back, gets back to Judah that Tamar is showing. And Judah responds as any reasonable person would in verse 24. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. No due process no question about what's going on here, uh, just immediately calls for her to be put to death. And so, so what the Bible is showing us here is that we've got Judah, who is a self-righteous hypocrite. This is his doing, but because he has effectively locked this woman up, lied to this woman, promised his third son, uh, now she's taken matters into her own hands, and now he has the gall to immediately want to put her to death. But Tamar is a smart woman, and she has thought this through. She has thought this through. Look at with me at verse 25. As she was being brought out, remember, to be burned, as she's bring, being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, 
since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. I've t- we talk about sometimes, I, w- I always try to imagine, imagine that the text that you're reading, some of us are really familiar with the Bible, we're really familiar, we're soaked in the stories of Genesis, and so we've heard this stuff before. Some of you, uh, this may be your first time hearing it, welcome to the Bible. And uh, for some of you, you may be a little f- hazy on some of the details, because Sunday school leaves out some of the details. But try to put yourself in the situation here. Tamar is being brought out to be burned, and she says, hold on, just a minute. Before you burn me to death, I got a real quick question that I just wanted to clear up. Can you guys tell me whose stuff this is? Now, some of you are too young for Jerry Springer. <laughs> Everyone's too young for Jerry Springer. But this is a Jerry Springer moment. This is the father. And Judah immediately realizes, she got me. Uh, this woman's more righteous than I am. And the Bible goes on in the last few verses of the chapter to tell us that that Tamar is actually pregnant with twins, and these twins are named Perez and Zerah. And that's the end of the chapter. That's it. All right, thanks. Joseph, sold into slavery. What's next? Oh my goodness. And why? Why is a story like this included? It seems like an odd choice to to stick right in the middle of the Joseph narrative. What I'd like to do is look at this story using the framework that we are using to look at this whole section of the Joseph narrative. So let's rewind three weeks to three weeks ago, if you were here with us. If you weren't with us three weeks ago, you can... You can catch up online, but, but rewind three weeks. I started the story of Joseph by skipping ahead to something that Joseph says at the end of his life in conversation with his brothers. You remember, it's, if you're a churchy kind of person, you know exactly what I'm talking about because it's the, big, it's the big statement from the whole story. But what does Joseph say at the end of his life as he reflects on all the things that, that lead him up to that point? He says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. And I said three weeks ago that that little tiny word, it, when when Joseph says you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, that little tiny word, just two letters, encompasses a whole lifetime of very difficult things. And so, I said, what we're going to do as we work our way through the Joseph story is we're going we're to unpack in each story what the it is that God meant for good. Each experience that Joseph has is part of that it that God meant for good. And so, I said three weeks ago, as Joseph is given up by his brothers, that, that God uses betrayal for good. He ends up using Joseph's betrayal for good, and we saw how this betrayal points out to 
the betrayal of one even greater than Joseph, Jesus Christ, who the Bible tells us is betrayed with a kiss and yet uses that for the good of all who come in faith to him. So I want to use that same framework to look at the story and give you the truth that I want you to walk away with, and then I want you to give me a few more minutes to build my case for it and to stay with me, okay? Here's the truth I want us to walk away with this story, uh, from the story with. God uses sinful choices for good. God uses our sinful choices, God uses sinful choices in general for good. This story, I don't think I have to convince you at this point, is chock full of some pretty sinful choices. I don't think there's anybody here that would disagree with me on that. And there are cascading consequences to these sinful choices that don't even start in this chapter. We think we can control sin. We think we're in the driver's seat. I'll do the things that I want, but I can keep it here. But sin has a way of producing cascading consequences that get out of control on us. We see Judah's character and his betrayal of Joseph. Remember, Judah's the one is, is the one person out of all the brothers that says, wait a minute, let's not kill him, let's sell him so that we can get something out of getting rid of him. So Judah's almost singled out of all the brothers as the most wicked one. So his wicked choices have already begun, and we just see the snowball effect of his wicked choices touching all sorts of people. So why then, I've asked, does the Bible record this distasteful event? And the answer, I think, is to be found, strangely enough, in one of Tamar's twins, Perez. You see, Perez is going to show up in the Bible a couple more times. Let me talk through this with you. Perez shows up in a pretty well-known story in the Bible that also includes the custom of leveret marriage. You might know, as I'm saying that, a well-known story in the Old Testament about leveret marriage if you've got some familiarity with the Bible. It's the story of Ruth. The cliff notes of that story is that Ruth is a Moabite woman, okay? So she is a Gentile, which is a Bible's category word for anybody that's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. She's a Moabite who marries a Jew that's living outside of Israel. But her husband dies, and so she ends up moving back into Israel as a Gentile with her mother-in-law. And while she is there, she is gleaning in a field, which means she would go behind the people at harvest time, and the edges or things that were, mixed, uh, were missed, people who uh, were, were economically disadvantaged, had uh, an opportunity to go back and pick up that which was dropped. In fact, the Old Testament law said, be careful that you don't, that you don't pick your fields too clean. Make sure that you, that you don't pick up what's dropped so that people who have less are able to come behind and get it. That's what Ruth is doing. And while she's doing that, the man that owns the field, whose name is Boaz, falls in love with her. And not only does he fall in love with her, but he, he is a, 
a more distant relative who could fulfill the responsibility of leveret marriage. And so when Boaz goes to the city gates, and this is a city that you may have heard of, Bethlehem, everything's connected. Everything's connected. He's in Bethlehem. He goes to the city gates, which is our equivalent of going to the courthouse to make something official. He goes to his version of the courthouse, and the Bible says this in, Roman, or in Ruth chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. It says, also Ruth, uh, this, is, this is Boaz speaking. He says, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Now when he says bought to be my wife, he's talking about paying the dowry. There's a, there's a redeeming aspect, a payment given. I'm taking on... I'm giving payment and I'm taking on responsibility, all these legal responsibilities. That's what it means when it says bought. Uh, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So there's our thing with leveret marriage, per- perpetuating the name of the dead. That the name of the dead may not be cut off among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Well, that's interesting. Rachel is Joseph's mom. Leah happens to be Judah's mom. So they invoke the fruitfulness of Jacob and Leah, say, may your house be like the house of of uh, Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Listen to this, verse 12. And may your house be the house, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Why? I can, you can see why it would invoke uh, Leah and Rachel in this, this pronouncement of blessing. Because Leah and Rachel are some of the matriarchs of the nation. So may you be like them, but why bring up Tamar and Judah? Because that's a kind of an unsightly situation. That's the kind of thing that you might conveniently leave out of the history books. That might be the thing that we don't talk about at Thanksgiving when the family gets together again. And Perez and Zerah, the two twins that are born of this, like, who are they? What's the point? Well, I think to try to tie it further together, I think the clue is found in Matthew's genealogy, the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. Let me read to you some of the verses from Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. It starts off, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now pause on that. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Why does he say Judah and his brothers? 
Who's the most famous brother? Joseph. We, go, we talk about Joseph from Genesis 37 all the way through Genesis chapter 50. Ju- Judah's almost a bit part. He's the bad guy. Well, he, they must have said Judah because Judah was the firstborn and that was the custom. Well, actually, no. Judah's not the firstborn. Reuben's the firstborn. So, and then Simeon. And then Levi. Then we get to Judah. So Judah's actually the fourthborn. And the Bible says Judah, the fourthborn, bad guy, and a bit of a bit part, Judah and his brothers. Verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the genealogy to you, but then it's going to be traced from David to who? Jesus. That's crazy, right? Does it make a little bit more sense now why we would get the origin story of Judah and Tamar and Perez, who is part of the line that produces the 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 uh, the 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 cru- head crusher of the serpent from Genesis chapter three. It is amazing to see how the Bible fits together. Now, in no way does that justify any of the things that happened that were wicked in God's sight. But. What it does speak to is God's sovereignty. You could use the word God's, I'm making this up, in controlness. God's sovereignty, his in controlness to take this tangled rat's nest of problems and produce a Messiah out of it. So, I told you that God uses our sinful choices for good. And if God can do that with the mess that Judah and all those people made, then what do you think he can do with you? Don't get me wrong. The fact that God can turn our sinful choices for good doesn't mean that we can just say, this is awesome. Let me get the deal straight. You're telling me I can do whatever I want and God just magically goes behind me and fixes it. This is great. I can sin. He forgives. I do my thing. He does his thing. And we're all happy. 
The Apostle Paul asks a question like that in Romans chapter 6. He says, shall we sin that grace may abound? And do you remember his answer? By no means. And then you know what the next verse is? It's the verse that we read earlier at our baptism today. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I told you, it's all connected. Everything's connected. That God turns our sinful choices for good does not mean that our choices don't matter. They do, and they, there are cascading consequences often for our sinful choices. Many of us have experienced that. But the good news that I want you to hear this morning is that our sinful choices cannot thwart God's purposes for our good. They can't do it. Now, it's, I think, a little bit easier for us to believe that God can use the sinful circumstances done around us for our good. And perhaps it's easier for us to believe that that God can even use some of the sinful things done to us for good. And when you're in one of those circumstances, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to see how that could possibly be the case. And all of us have, have had experiences and circumstances in our lives, and some of you may be experiencing some of them right now, where you're looking at this thing and saying, I do not see it. And the Lord just has to give you the eyes of faith to believe when you cannot see But, I think, often what is harder for us to believe is that God will use the sinful choices done by us for good. Because many times, the sinful choices we make, we knew we shouldn't do it, and we did it anyway. And for some reason, that feels like it's in some kind of different category. Like, I, I know you can work out the mess around me and the, the experiences that I've had, but I did that. I burnt that bridge. I hurt that person. I made that mistake. I was a slave to that sin. It was my choice to do it. And when we, when we look at it that way and think, I, to use Bible language, sinned with a high hand, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do, and I went the other way, and I did the opposite. It is harder for us to believe that God would use those things for good. Because there's like an exception clause in our mind, unless I did it on purpose. Or, the things, the mistakes that you have made in your life that plague you in the night. When you've been asleep for a couple of hours and then you wake up wide awake and your brain's like, you know what would help you get back to sleep? Thinking about all the terrible things you've done. Let's do that. 
I hope I'm not the only person that had that because that was just a major moment of self-confession. But it's true. Sometimes the nighttime is the darkest time where you think about the things that you've done, the mistakes that you've made, the people that you've hurt. You run through how you could have done it differently. And there are just some things that you think, I, this can't be fixed. Like the window of fixing is gone on this. Those things are harder to believe. Which is why I want to remind you today, if you are a follower of Jesus, when those things come to your mind in the darkness of the night and your mind starts racing, God is going to turn even that into good. And I don't, hear me on this, I don't mean theoretically that he can turn it to good or hopefully that he might turn it to good. I say it emphatically that he will turn it for good. The Bible promises you that in Romans 8 when it says God works all things together for good to those who are called according to His purposes in Christ Jesus. It's not a might. It's not a maybe. It is a definitely. And so when you find yourself attacked by those things, you can say, you're right, Satan. You're right, mind. You're right, internal dialogue, every one of those things is true, but Jesus has redeemed me from those things and he's going to turn all of this for good in ways that I can't imagine and I'm going to go back to sleep. Because if he can produce the Messiah from Judah and Tamar, there's some verses I can't read in I think he can do it for you. So, I've been speaking primarily to the Christians who are here. Let me just say a word to those of you who are with us this morning who may not be followers of Jesus. If you're here with us this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, welcome. We're glad you're here. We've got people who aren't followers of Jesus with us each and every week, and we're always glad for it. If you're not a follower of Jesus... Can I refer you to the gospel that I talked through at the beginning today before the baptism? The gospel is the good news that Jesus dies in our place. He receives the punishment that we deserve for our sin, that by the power of God rises from the dead in triumph over sin and death. What would make someone stay back and not reach out in faith to receive forgiveness of sins. For some of us, it might be the belief that I am too bad. That there are a garden variety of sins, but I've done some stuff. I've hurt some people. If I was to tell them I was forgiven, they would laugh in my face because of the ongoing things I've done to them. That kind of stuff. 
I and we here want you to know that that good news applies also to you. There is no sin too big for our Savior. And I would just ask you, as the service closes today, that you would consider the state of your soul before God, and if you have been hesitant to come to Him, that you would put your inhibitions behind you. Hear Him calling to you. Reach out to Him in faith and experience a forgiveness that you cannot imagine. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the things that we have been able to study today and thankful for the amazing way the Bible is put together. We're thankful that even in the ugliness, the light of the gospel shines through. That even in a series of horrific events that that have been recorded for us, you would take those things and turn them for our good and your glory. For those of us who are Christians here this morning, I pray, plagued by regret, plagued by bitterness, plagued by shame, I pray that you would help them to receive afresh and anew the glorious gospel of Jesus. That they are forgiven not only of their sins, but delivered from their shame. And Lord, as they remember and have those things brought to their mind, I pray that they would remember what we've talked about today, that you use all things for good. If there is someone here with us this morning who does not know you and has been hesitant to come to you, because they think that their sin is bigger than their Savior, I would pray that they would see Jesus as glorious and trust in him this morning. We ask these things in his name. Amen.